Lord God, uh, speak to us, uh, encourage us, help us to think your thoughts after you. Um, help us as we grapple with some ideas about life and about you for this to be really useful and grounded in, uh, in a way that helps us flourish in this world. And we ask this in your name. Uh, so it struck me, and I don't know if it struck you, that as a culture uh, and as a society and individually, we're not out of the woods yet in terms of a return to pre-COVID, um, pre-security competition with China, pre-war in Europe existence. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of there's a lot of bad anxiety generating news out there. We have relentless waves of sickness. We've got increasing inflation, interest rates going up, predicted housing market collapse, um, you know, substantial ground war between nation states in Central Europe and, um, and, this, and the sickness that just keeps coming. Um, this year, in many ways, has felt harder than the last two years. I don't know about you, but the last two years were hard, but you kind of, everyone locked down and that was it and there was chaos, And but it, it was sort of, okay, you just, and then this year was like, oh, well, we're through this all. But of course, any epidemiologist would say, well, no, it takes probably four years to go through a global pandemic. So we're not through it. And in fact, it seems to have got worse in all sorts of ways, um, not to depress you, uh, but I, it got me thinking, what do we, what, what do we need to do as a spiritual community, as a church family, to build health and strength into our own lives to survive? Um, how do we do that? What does that look like? And I was thinking about this and I thought, well, here's at least eight things that I think we should think about. And we're not going to think about them all this morning. This is where we're heading for the next few weeks as a community to think about. And uh, how does the particular, well, and how does our faith, and if you don't have faith, how do other people's faith, how does a, a belief and an experience of Jesus shape us? And I thought, well, to build health and health and strength individually and organizationally and in our culture, we need to think about community. We need to think about the foundations that we build on. We need to think about our purpose. Do we have a transcendent purpose for life beyond simply pleasure and comfort and safety and security? We need to develop our gratitude attitude because that seems quite lacking it's easy when things are tough to just focus on all the difficulties and the negativities and the problems and what we've lost and the grief. And you go, ah, there's a lot to be said for maintaining an attitude of gratitude. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. We need hope. I mean, this isn't as bad as it can get, people. <laughs> uh, it can get a lot worse. Um, and there's, and the, with God, the best is yet to come. The Bible has a lot to say about hope. We need to think about a, a theology of health. We, we are acutely aware of our health at the moment, aren't we? The last couple of years have made this. But so what's a, is there a particular Christian attitude to health? I mean, is all, is all sickness a result of unconfessed sin in your life? For example, maybe we don't think that's right. Maybe do we have a right to be healthy? How do we deal with it? How do we stop our health becoming this dominating idolatrous preoccupation that shapes everything? So what does that look like? What's a, it's a particular Christian vision of health? Uh, what about work? 
Um, how do we balance work with all of that? And then what about rest? How do we find rest in the middle of a, a world that's changing? So those are just some thoughts. Now, as we go, we might discover there are other major things that we need to grapple with and we will, but this is sort of the trajectory of what we want to, what, what I think we need to unpack over the next um, uh, eight weeks, maybe four weeks. I'll see how quickly we get through it all. Um, but I hope it'll be super helpful. So today, we're going to think about building health and strength in the area of community. And I wanted us to think about the importance of community, the practicalities of community, and where do we find the energy for community? So uh, the importance of community. Uh, we all know intuitively, and that's what this question, you know, when we asked the question, when do we, you know, when have you had to really rely on people? Um, well, uh, Matt behind the, uh, behind the computer, they made the point, well, really, when do we not have to rely on people is the real question. Uh, but if you think about it from the moment of our conception, we are conceived in community, are we not? The act of conception is an act of community. And then you're brought into this world in community and you live in community. We are relational beings. We're made to live uh, in community with each other. And there's a bunch of data about this, uh, but community. And so here's some data, for example, they did this massive uh, meta study of, uh, this is in the book, you'll see the footnote down there, Robin Dunbar is a world's leading social anthropologist on, uh, actually started studying uh, primates in Africa. He grew up the, I think the son of a, a missionary in Africa and he studied primates. And then he thought, well, I should make a living out of that. And he transferred it to studying human groupings and has studied how we group socially in all kinds of fascinating ways. And this is, a, if you're into reading, this is a really interesting book. Um, and they did this, he quotes this meta study that looks at uh, about, I think it was about 1,200 studies on survivability from uh, health events like heart attack and stroke. And the criteria was you either died or you didn't. So it wasn't a self-reported, I felt better as a result of this. It's like, did you survive? And the big surprise was that it was the social measures that most influenced your chances of surviving, and especially so after heart attacks and strokes. Presumably, the heart attack didn't kill you on the spot. You survived the heart attack. Well, what happened after that? The best predictors were those that contrasted high versus low frequencies of social support and those that measured how well integrated you were into your social network and your local community. Scoring high on these increased your chances of surviving by as much as 50%. It's pretty amazing, right? So uh, it matters a lot. It, here's another bit of data from Dunbar's book. Uh, uh, this, is, this is one for the parents and for us as a community who want to raise kids together. In a longitudinal study of 267 males, Jenny Cundiff and Karen Matthews found that the more socially integrated the child was at age six years, the lower their blood pressure and body mass index two decades later in their early 30s. Uh, this result held up when they controlled for race, body mass index, and childhood parental socioeconomic status, childhood health, and extroversion. In other words, social engagement during childhood has consequences, direct or indirect, that last well into adulthood. That's a pretty sobering thought. Okay, so, you know, just a thought. That's why uh, a church community is so incredibly vital for the raising of kids, because this is a place outside of or in addition to school where kids can be socialized and socially integrated into community where we value always accepting kids no matter how annoying and difficult they might be 
because kids are annoying and difficult, right? Particularly other people's kids, or even particularly your own kids. Like they just, but but they're always welcomed here. And the difficult kids, and the kids in single parent families, and the kids with behavioral issues, they need to be socialized. And churches are historically have been the place where that happens. Uh, and that's fantastic. So uh, it's really very significant, I thought. Uh, here we go. Uh, during the early 2000s, just in case you haven't got the message, we sampled 74 young mothers with a two-year-old toddler living in Liverpool, recording both the mother's illnesses and those of their infants, as well as how often they contacted individual family members and friends over the course of a year. Those who reported higher frequencies of contact with close family had lower illness rates, not what you would expect if social contacts caused the spread of disease, especially if these contacts were with very close relatives. This was also true for that toddlers. In other words, once again, people with large extended families suffered fewer problems. That's interesting, hey? The power of relationships. Now, it's funny, um, as someone who's moved countries numerous times, uh, I look at that and I go, wow, imagine living in one spot with a massive, large extended family all around you. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Um, but that's not true. I'm looking around here. How many of you grew up in Sydney? How many, how many, for how many of us in this room now is Sydney home growing up? Yeah, that's not big, hey? Look at that. How many of us are new to Sydney in the last decade? All the South Africans put their hands up. Yeah, yeah, no, well, fine. <laughs> well, this is a this is a very good good topic for for those of you who knew who migrants, right? It's fascinating um, how how important this is. Um, loneliness in um, middle age and beyond is correlates strongly with rates increased rates of dementia, uh, heart disease, and uh, robs you of. Uh, on average, uh, the data is not clear, but up to, can reduce your life expectancy by as much as 10 years. It's as dangerous as smoking um, in, in old age, uh, middle age from like 60 onwards. So again, the churches historically have been the com a community that is multi-age where we socialize kids from the start and they, that's an amazing network for them. But it's also a community where we socialize and care for people at the other end of life. And they're loved and cared for and involved and involved with young people, sometimes when their own families aren't around. And that's the beauty and the power of a local church. Now, there are other community organizations that do that. Um, but I would say none as none of whom have the unique DNA and spiritual drive that a local church has to be inclusive and kind and welcoming and loving uh, like us, you know, so um, it's significant. And I think this data is really significant because when you look at what's happened in our community over the last two and a half, three years with lockdowns, um, it feels like there has been a thinning out of our sense of connectedness when you, when you haven't been allowed to see your even your close family. That, that has massive developmental impacts on kids, mental health impacts on the elderly, mental health impacts on all of us, right? And where we are now, I was just chatting uh, on the way in, and it seems like um, we are all very quick to disengage and, and retreat back into our huddle with the least excuse, the littlest sniffle, which I sort of understand. And we're, we're very happy to go, oh, I just want to work from home. I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to keep my kid back from school. I mean, gone are the days where 
um, I mean, my mum was a doctor, right? So, um, and doctors are notoriously bad, at least, <laughs> like, unless you were dying, unless there was a piece of bone sticking through the skin, you, you just you just kind of went to school, right? Like, you just, there's no, that's gone. Like, no, no, we've got to. And so what that actually does is it feels like it, it thins out this, these networks. So one of the ways I think about it, and you see this in workplaces, everyone's celebrating how wonderful it is we can all work from home. I remember just three years ago, or maybe a little longer, I remember reading all this research on the big goal was how to get people to bring their full self to work. Okay, that's what you really wanted. Everyone fully engaged. That's where the real competitive advantage was. And on a dime now, we're all going, well, the real benefit is you can work from home. And I'm like, you're crazy, right? Like working from home is appealing. And at one level, it has benefits. But the erosion of social capital, of that sense of community and the collective mental health and resilience that your organization builds from actually just being together, like you are not going to rely on people as much who you've only ever seen on a Zoom call as you will rely on the person who has been sitting next to you uh, for years in the office, going out for coffee, going out for drinks, hanging out. Like there's just a different level of reliance and social capital and connection and a different level, I would say, of society-wide mental health as a result. Now, there are certain benefits from working from home, for sure. Don't get me wrong. And, and maybe it is a whole lot better than sitting in traffic for an hour and a half each way. And I'm sure there are lots of benefits. But the point is powerful that, that we're, we're social beings made for connection. And there's some practicalities the research shows, right? Um, practicalities of community. Uh, uh, interdependence. So you might say, Mark, how is this a uh, sermon, not a TED talk? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, the passage we read, you read what the Bible has to say about the reality of the church. You cannot get a more interconnected metaphor that Paul uses than the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, a human body. Like it's so massively, radically interdependent. Uh, God has put the body together so that there'll be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of it. Like that's a dram that is a profound, dramatic description of interdependence. In Christ, it's remarkable. There are some practicalities around this, right? The first is that sense of interdependence. And one of the things we have to work against is the cultural tendency of competitive individualism. Um, and, uh, and look, it's one of the great strengths of the Bible and of our culture is we value the individual. We're not a collectivist culture um, in, the, in the West here. So we do value individual human rights, for example. We don't just think in terms of group rights, uh, no matter how much some people in the academy and in popular discourse are trying to say, well, our 
it's all about group identity, whether it's male or female or LGBTQIA, or whether it's the amount of melatonin in your skin and your racial identity. There's this push to try and say, we're all thinking about group rights. It's not true. We're still in one of the great strengths of our culture is we still value people as individuals. But one of the weaknesses of that is it can become a competitive uh, consumer-oriented individualism that actually undermines community. And I think things like the experiences of the last two years um, can highlight that when we're disconnected and we only relate mediated via screens and pixels, it makes it harder to establish genuine interdependence. And the other thing that makes interdependence hard is we're all so jolly rich. We don't really need people. Like, I mean, we're just rich. I don't really need anyone for anything because I've, I've, I've got enough money to buy my own cup of sugar. And, and if I run out of sugar, I don't have to go to the neighbor and ask, can I borrow a cup of sugar? This was the example that always used to be used when I was growing up in community. You'd go next door and when your mum ran out of a cup of sugar, you'd go next door and borrow the sugar from the neighbor. Now you just go to the Woolies. It's open till 10 o'clock at night. I'd never go next door. Oh, we don't actually have a next door. The long daycare center doesn't have anyone there, you know? <laughs> but we don't need people much. You, we have money, we have health. We don't do barn raisings anymore. You know, in the good old days, if you were Amish and you lived up in somewhere in Amish land in Pennsylvania, um, everyone would get together as a community to help you raise your barn. We don't even, we don't raise barns anymore. We don't do much together at all. As a church, we used to run working bees. How many of you were in churches back in the good old days when you used to run working bees? Yeah, when last did we have a working bee? We should have one. <laughs> Yeah, well, we should. That'd be awesome. Yeah, you know, where we could all look over our spreadsheets and, uh, you know, uh, but hey, hey, most of us, the last working bee I ran in our church in Melbourne, we did more damage that required tradespeople to fix. <laughs> we were a church plant with a lot of young adults and they very enthusiastically dug up a path and went through a whole bunch of, cabling and wires at five thousand dollars later it was a bit awkward um but we did have a working bee we, we pulled apart the interior of our the shop we used to rent and those of us who helped out there it was actually it was fun nearly killed some of us but we had and warwick's not here so i'll take his name in vain and there's warwick who's not the youngest member of our congregation um in there pulling down wood and hammering away and just helping out and there's something but normally we just we pay people to clean we do this so we could think about stuff like that that's fun to do together um but community requires uh, there's a bunch of other things that go towards making community work and this is just quoting the social science research frequency proximity proximity and spontaneity to have a sense of community you need to meet with each other you need to see each other regularly even for a bloke, like I, no, no, this is a little weird. I caught up, I've had a, a, a year of catching up with old friends. Uh, I saw my oldest school friend. I went up to Brisbane and spent the night, uh, a day, two days and a night, stayed with him. I hadn't seen him for 20 odd years. And uh, we started preschool together when we were both three. He's, his name's also Mark. And it was wonderful. Like as a bloke, I, but, but 20 three years between catch-ups is probably not enough to have a real sense of community. I mean, it was great when I was there, but I don't feel any deep ongoing enrichment in my life 
today because I caught up with him. I mean, in 23 years time, when we catch up again, it'll be fantastic. Um, and I had the same thing. I spoke to an old school friend uh, on the phone. He's in the UK and we had a chat and it was great, but it's been probably 15, no, it hasn't. It's been 10 years since we caught up. That's not enough. So how much is enough to have a sense of community, do you think? To actually feel connected with the community. Do you think it's once a month to be part of? Once a fortnight? Once a week? Daily? Yeah, you've probably heard me preach this over the last seven years. Yeah, 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 three. So, so social researchers would say to have three kind of touch points with people in your community is what makes you start to feel connected and like it's actually a part of your life. So uh, three times in some form. Um, uh, and then proximity. So you need to be close to each other. Now, obviously, we can talk about digital proximity. That helps. That's part of it. Um, you know, so you can be digitally proximate and close because you're in the same network. We've got, that's why one of the reasons we have Circle, which is our online tool to try and create some of that. But you can feel close to people on Facebook or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but actually living in physical proximity helps build community. So uh, Beck's testimony aside, driving across the city, one of the things that is used, but even then you're not that far, like to be honest, on a Sunday, you're not, you're not always late because it's so far to come. <laughs> um, but there's something like in a city like ours to live, if, if, you, if you've got to drive more than 15 minutes to get here, it's, it's going to be difficult to experience a sense of community. Um, now, 50, a 15-minute drive from here on a Sunday captures quite a wide area, right? Um, of course, it helps if you can walk to church. That's even better. Uh, so that's, that's a real buzz if you can actually walk. Um, and then, and all of those work because one of the things that makes community feel great is spontaneity when you just bump into people. I can't tell you how many like pretty profound conversations I've had with people when I'm just at Woolies doing the groceries and you bump into them, right? So uh, I, which you'll discover with me that uh, many people come into my presence and start crying. This is just a gift I have. Um, and I've had numerous occasions bumping into people at Woolies and suddenly out comes all the burdens and the stuff of life and, and we're in, we find a corner of Woolies and they're in tears for a bit and we can just talk and you go, that's, and you know, all, and that's, that's a profound way of connecting. Or you just bump into someone and you go, why don't we go and grab a coffee? And you just sit and it feels different. The spontaneous bump into someone feels different to the, oh, we should get together in three months time and you get your diaries out and you try and organize an event. Now that's great as well. That's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But the feeling of community is, it helps if you just, if there's some spontaneity around it. Uh, all of which is great. There is a, practic a final practicality that one has to grapple with with community, and that's called sin. And sin takes many forms. Sin at its heart is pride and selfishness. And the problem is sin is present in every one of our hearts and therefore in every one of our relationships in all of our communities. So we need to figure out how sin works because we're made to connect with each other. 
That's God's plan. And what sin does is it pulls us apart. It pulls us apart. So, um, and sin can take many forms. Um, I don't know. I mean, gossip destroys community. But there are other forms of sin, like workaholism. If you make an idolatry out of your work and everything in life is subordinated to the task of getting ahead in your career and earning enough money to make you feel good about yourself and try and convince you that your life has meaning and purpose because of the amount of money you have, if that's what drives you, that sin will severely limit your capacity to love people and be with them in community. You're not going to have time, but you're also going to treat people instrumentally. That is, people aren't going to be valued as ends in themselves. They're always going to be a means to the end of your own career advancement or your own economic advancement. So workaholism and careerism can actually pull apart community, can't it? Uh, sloth. We could go through. I'm thinking after we've done this, we might do a series on the seven deadly sins. They're awesome because they match with some amazing energies of God. Like so, but sloth, like laziness, how it's so, and I think this is the other impact of COVID, right? And I'll put my hand up to admit to this. I'm actually quite glad for the littlest, littlest, littlest excuse to pull out of stuff because it's so much easier to stay home and watch Netflix than to go and hang out with people. It's just easier, isn't it? Because like it's less demanding. And when they get boring, you turn, you change channels, pick another show. And then you go to bed. And that's hard to do when you're out with people. You're boring. Can I just find some more interesting people to talk to now? It's, it's apparently quite difficult to do. Um, so, and, and that's because there's, a, there's a, a laziness in us as well. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but pick your sin that actually makes community hard. And it's there. And so we need to grapple with that and go, oh, all right. How do you deal with that? And we've got to work against that. Here's another practicality. This is uh, Dunbar's numbers. You might be thinking to yourself now, oh, yes, community, friendship's fantastic. Um, you can think about friendship in a number of ways or, or relationships. And, um, and these are concentric rings that we all fill. And Dunbar's numbers, you'll see they all go up in sort of... Um, multiples of three times each number by three. So each of us on average has one and a half people who are at, at our most intimate. And, and actually you say, how do you have one and a half really, really intimate friends? Well, that's because typically men have one friend, their life partner, who's typically a woman and women typically have their male life partner and a best friend. So um, somehow a husband is never enough for the wife, but the wife is... <laughs> The wife is fine for the husband. Make of it what you will. Did I mention sin? I mean, um, uh, so guys, make sure your wife has a really great uh, close friend. Um, uh, so we have that. And then you have uh, your closest friends, the five around you, who are uh, the people who will always be there for you, who are the people you instinctively and always turn to for help, and you pretty much know they will never say no. Now, for most people, that's family. Think about it. You come into the world. Um, <laughs> who cares for you when you come into the world? It's one or two people. And who cares for you when you go out at the other end? It's often one or two people. 
So all of your life is then an accumulation of friends and then a steady losing of friends, you, which is the way the Bible says, naked I came into the world and naked I leave the world. You, you, you come in and you leave and that's the shape. But on the way, you accumulate friends. The five are those you'll always turn to. And very often it's family. Of course, if you've moved and you're living in a different city, you're part of a mobile community, then you've got to find those five. They're the people you can turn to. Uh, and then beyond that, there are 15. So, and it's fascinating. You read the Bible, you go, ah, there's 12. What did Jesus had that, right? He had his inner core of the three, the three of them. That's a group of four. And then he had the 12 disciples. You see this all the way through sports teams. You don't typically have a sports team of 40 people. And you, are, you don't have a sports team of four or five people. You have sports teams of like between 11 and 18. Are there any teams that have more than 18 players on the field at any one time? I cannot think so. It's only AFL that has 18 on the field. Normally, it's like 11 to 15. Okay, so because that's the social, you can keep those are your, those are your, <laughs> your best friends, as it were, sporting-wise. Um, and then you have good friends at the 50. And then you have a group of 150, 500, 1500, and so on. So practically, what you need to be aware of, though, is um, if, if you're, you can't make a new friend, if, all, if you've been living in a stable environment for a while, you can't make a new friend without booting someone out of your currently filled slots. Does that make sense? So if your inner five are all filled, you don't, you don't have any more space for a super close friend. If your best friends, if you've got 15 in your inner ring of your best friends, the only way you're going to bring a new person in is by booting someone out. It's like you just, you know, get voted off the island. Um, well, you can expand it a little, but do you see what that, so um, what does that mean for a church? Uh, well, we're a church, maybe in total pre-COVID, in the community, folk who would call church, including kids home would be about 120 people, including kids, maybe 130 on the database. So we're up into that. You could know everybody. We could be in the, the friends. We're a friendship-sized church, right? What COVID's done for us, interestingly, or coming out of COVID, is it's reduced our Sunday experience to around a, a good friend size. Uh, how many of you were here last week? A few of us here last. So last week, we had about 100 people in the building. This week, we've got about 50 people in the building. Feels very different. So 50 people feels like you're amongst friends. 100 people, you go, mm. uh, 50 people, you feel like you're in good friends. 100 people, you, it's friends. It's a, it's a different feel. So now, of course, here's the challenge for church. We all come and we want friends, particularly if you've moved into the city, particularly if you're new. And you go and, and you come to church on a Sunday and everyone is super friendly when you meet them here. But how do you... If everyone, if no one's going to make space for you in their, in their, um, you know, 15 circle of friends, how do you ever break in? How do you ever get a sense that you're making best friends or even good friends in church? Well, it, it has to happen because, well, people, I, whoa, that'd be my headset. It's just, it's just to wake you up. Hang on a minute.
might be God saying it's time to finish up. Um, never, never. God says to me, keep talking, Mark. Keep talking. They're not asleep yet. They're not asleep yet. Uh, making friends requires a great deal of effort and time. It's not something you can just magic up over a cup of coffee, not least because everyone else is already embedded in friendship networks of their own. And to make time and room for you as a new friend means they will have to sacrifice a friendship with someone else. What happens in a church is we are called to be radically other person centered, to actually prize open our friendship networks to involve new people. Churches die when they refuse to do that. Churches become religious book clubs that are committed to the maintenance of their own friendship groups when they're driven by fear of missing out or apathy or laziness or just being together too long without any new people in them. That's why the best, and so here's some practical tools. The best people to make friends within a church are other people who are new to the church. Because once you've been in a church 20 years and you're coming to church Sunday by Sunday with all your best friends and people you've been coming to church with for 20 years every Sunday, you don't have capacity, not because you're a bad person, you don't have the capacity or interest to make new friends, to involve new people in your circles, unless you make that a massive priority. And there are people in our church who've done that over many years. Wendy and Beck are two stellar examples of people who have done that over 20 years. Uh, I can think of many examples of people who haven't done that and churches who don't do that. So where do we get the energy for this community, our own experience of grace? So the energy, when, when I show grace to you, that multiplies more uh, grace in the community. When I, and here's the paradox, when I include others in my friendship circles, it, it's not a zero-sum game. Community, even though Dunbar makes it out to be the case, the truth of the matter is in the kingdom of heaven, uh, community and friendship and love is not a zero-sum game. God energizes us to involve others and include others, but it takes work. And at the heart of it, the energy comes from Jesus. I'll tell you why. Uh, community's hard. It's much easier to be selfish, to just use people to get what we want. Um, what... What makes community ultimately possible is the one, the only perfect person who loved others as he loved himself was Jesus, right? And what did Jesus do? How did that work out for Jesus? Well, the great exchange is this, the one person who existed in perfect community for, forever before coming to earth, then, then progressively lost everyone. And Jesus dies alone, abandoned by all his friends, absolutely stripped of all community. In the end, abandoned even by his heavenly father. Why does he do that? So that he can give to us who, because of our sin, both in present and as we die, live a life of fractured community and actually live alone. Jesus exchanges, takes upon himself the loneliness and isolation that sin requires and gives us in place uh, access to the kingdom of heaven, an eternity of community with God and with each other. And that's where the real energy and the power for community comes from. As I experience that exchange, that love of Jesus for me, dying for me, becoming alone for me, so that I never have to be alone, 
I have the power to include others. Because of what Jesus has done, I know that no matter what happens in this world, I have secured for me in the kingdom of heavens, a community that nothing can ever take from me. So I have the energy and the capacity to involve new people because, because you're, not, you're not everything for me. God is everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you are here for us and help us to build a community that is lasting and enduring grounded and formed in you. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.